and welcome to another episode of Best of the Left Podcast. Today we have clips from the BBC, Rachel Maddow, Keith Olbermann, Real Time with Bill Maher, Sam Cedar, and the Young Turks. So, on this day, Harry Reid decides to screw the Democrats. Oh, my friend, Senator Reid, you picked the wrong day. Because I'm coming. I'm coming for you. <laughs> so, yesterday we explained this to you. There's two versions of the FISA bill. This is the warrantless wiretapping, right? FISA bill, by the way, you, you read the thing, it's so perfectly reasonable. It says you want to go and wiretap the living crap out of the rest of the world? Have at it. Go nuts. I don't give a damn about uh, Pakistani or Canadian or Australian rights. They don't have any rights in the U.S. You want to wiretap their ass? Go for it. We don't care. Okay. This is the current FISA bill, the one that we support. Okay. And, and they say, all right, you want to wiretap people uh, inside the U.S.? You got to get a warrant. But once you get a warrant, and this FISA court, they're giving the warrants away. 99.95% of the cases get warrants. Go ahead, get the warrant. It's the simplest thing in the world. It's a rubber stamp. Then you can go and listen all you like. And if you want the corporations like AT&T and Verizon to help you, all you got to do is have not even get a court order, but have an attorney general sign a letter saying, yeah, it's legal, go ahead. Or do it and then say, hey, I did it in good faith. I mean, they're covered A to Z. It's the softest law in the history of the world. But Bush found a, violate, found a way to violate even that law. That wasn't soft enough for him. That didn't trample upon liberties, liberties enough for him. So he said, no, I want to wiretap Americans without a court order, and I want AT&T and Verizon to help me. So now we've gone through all the different machinations, and there's two bills now on how to fix this uh, situation. There's the Intelligence Committee bill. I don't want to bore you with the details. I'm going to call that the Republican bill, because that is the bill that literally Dick Cheney dictated to Jay Rockefeller. Jake Rockefeller has a D next to his name, claims to be a Democrat, nothing of the sort. In the complete back pocket of AT&T and Verizon, some of his biggest contributors, right? In October of 2007, Jay Rockefeller called Dick Cheney and said, what would you like to write in the bill? This is literally true. He said, okay, yes, sir, thank you very much, sir. This is what Dick Cheney wants in the bill, this is what he's going to get. Okay, and he, so I'm going to call that the Cheney version, the Republican version. And then in the Judiciary Committee, they came up with a reasonable quote-unquote, fix of the FISA bill. Because the only thing that was wrong with the FISA bill was, if you, right now, apparently, because of the way the communications are, are which I don't even believe, but let's grant it to them. They say, oh, well, AT&T has a communication from Pakistan to Canada. Canada. What am I, George Bush? Wow, that was stupid. All right, I'm worked up, that's why. To Pakistan to Canada. That was funny. <laughs> uh, goes through the United States and while it's going through the U.S., then legally, technically, we would have to get a warrant for it. So what we need to do is fix it so the, our intelligence can listen to all foreign calls, even if it goes, gets routed technically through the United States. No problem. You write that, that's two sentences, you hand it in. And basically, the Judiciary Committee bill is not perfect, but that's what it's done. It's fixed the real problem and left the rest of it alone, right? So we'll call that the Democrat bill. And I'm being way too kind by calling it the Democratic version of the bill. All right? But Leahy and the rest of the people in the Judiciary Committee came up with that bill. It's fine. So it comes to Harry Reid, the Senate Majority Leader 
for the Democrats, supposedly. And he can choose either one of those bills. So, of course, what does Harry Reid do? He chooses the Republican version. Then he comes out with lame, look, we're not on local radio anymore, right? So let's call it what it is, lame, bullshit excuses to choose the Republican side. Oh, well, that one came in a couple hours before the other one did, and technically I could do, go this way or that way, so I chose the Dick Cheney version instead. Okay, not buying it. He totally wanted to choose the Republican version. That's why he chose it. So then Dodd gets up there, Chris Dodd does, and says, hey, you know what? This is, I'm not going to stand for this. This is wrong, right? I, I, why are we going to, what does the Republican version do? It says all the law breaking that AT&T and Verizon, all these telecommunication companies did, when they broke the softest law in the history of the world, the FISA law, well, that said, hey, you know what? You can break this law if you're acting in good faith. So when they broke that law and they asked for immunity, what they're saying is, we knew we were acting in bad faith. If we were acting in good faith, we wouldn't need this immunity. We knew that we were breaking the law, we knew it was illegal, and we were acting in bad faith, and we did it anyway. Now I want you to make sure that I don't suffer the consequences of that. And then, of course, there are other people who say, oh, wait, Republicans say, well, but they had to, because we forced them. Well, first of all, if you force them, why don't you get your ass in jail for breaking the law? What's Rockefeller doing about that? Nothing. Zilch. Squat. Collaborator that he is. Okay? So, um... And then they say, well, the companies couldn't do anything about it. How about Quest? Quest said, no, that's an illegal uh, request. I'm not going to do it. And what did they do to Quest? They punished them by taking away hundreds of millions of dollars of contracts, if not billions in contracts. And then they arrested the CEO on some trumped-up charges. They said, well, you counted on these contracts, but we took them away from you because you wouldn't work, break the law, help us break the law. And since you've got bad reporting, now we're going to say, oh, SEC violations, and they threw him in jail. Now, I mean, what has this country turned into? And in all of this, we need somebody to fight for us on the right side. And instead, what do we have? We have Rockefeller and Reed that say, no, I'm going to go with the Republican version that gives everybody immunity. The telecommunications company, AT&T, Verizon, all those guys, they all get off scot-free. And am I going to investigate the Bush administration that ordered this? No. Not only that, I'm going to make sure that this never goes into open court, so we'll never find out how much Bush and Cheney broke the law. Never. That's what the Reid has promised to Republicans. I swear to you, I will always protect you, my dear Republicans. So this is what happens yesterday. And then Reid comes out, or this is the, the background on it, and then Reid comes out yesterday and says, you know what? Uh, I'm sticking with what I'm doing. I'm going to go with the, uh, the the Republican version of the bill, right? And I'm going to help Bush out. Not only that, I'm issuing a threat right here that if any of you Democrats, like you wise asses, Dodd and Feingold, standing up for the Constitution and the rule of law, if you want to filibuster, I'm going to make you get up here and filibuster all night long. Now, I never did that to my Republican friends because I love them. I love them. I would never hurt them, right? But you Democrats, you want to cross me, I'll make you stand up here all night long and do an actual filibuster. Make you suffer as much as possible. That's what happened last night. So this morning, Reed's people issue a press release and Reed goes to the Senate and says, No, 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 no. I'm taking a lot of crap for this, so let me backpedal a little bit. I didn't mean the Democrats had to filibuster. I meant the Republicans, if they don't want the amendments, like the Dodd-Feingold Amendment, right? And there's a Feingold-Webb tester amendment. These are all good amendments. If they want to filibuster those amendments, they have to speak all night. Like, no, 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 I was on the side of the Democrats. And I looked at it and I said, oh, maybe I got it wrong, because I'm an open-minded dude, and all this is complicated, right? 
Maybe I read the wrong sources, and maybe that's what Feingold—that's uh, what Reed meant, right? So I turned to Senator Feingold because we trust Senator Feingold. He's been fighting the right fight all along. So what does Feingold says? Feingold says, not buying it. Reed knows that those amendments. He doesn't know, but he thinks those amendments aren't going to get the, the Democratic amendments aren't going to get 50 votes. So they're not going to pass. So the Republicans don't need to filibuster them anyway. Why won't they pass? Because all the Republicans will support it, and we've got a bunch of sellout Democrats who are going to go along with the Republicans. So they're going to lose anyway, right? So who, under what circumstance would a filibuster arise? When Dodd gets up and says to the overall bill, you know what? I can't do it. We've got to filibuster this bill because this bill lets the Bush administration break the law with no consequences whatsoever. So in reality, as Feingold explains, Harry Reid's threats of a, actually holding a filibuster are not aimed at the Republicans. They're aimed at the Democrats. If you dare cross Harry Reid when he's trying to help his Republican buddies, he'll make you pay the price. If you're a Republican, scot-free, all day long. So, yesterday as we left off, I said, one, Reid is as guilty as charged, as we suspected. Two, I hope that Dodd and Feingold actually stand up and fight this thing anyway. And today we find out. Are you ready? You're curious, right? Which way is it going to go? They're going to filibuster. They said, yeah, go ahead. You know, they, when Dodd did it, he said, they called it a presidential ambition trick, and then I was doing it for politics. He said, I'm not doing it for politics. I'm going to do it again. And if you bring it up, I'll bring a phone book. You find gold to grab a pillow. Let's go to work. Okay? Not on our watch. It's not going to happen. Oh, I love it. God, you know, this, this is what we've been asking for. Get the majority of the Democrats on your side. Get the Democratic leadership on the side of what's right. Ha <laughs> ha, laugh along with me. Not possible. Right? Not in this day and age, my brother. But we're just asking for one or two guys to fight. Because in the Senate, all you need is one or two to stand up and say, no, it's not going to happen. And... It appears we have our one or two guys. Chris Dodd, as we suspected, and Feingold, as we suspected, are going to stand up and say, we're not going to let these Bush guys get away with it. We don't care what our leadership says. We don't care if the majority of the Democrats want to sell out. We're not going to do it. How much? Look, this is how, number one, this is leadership. Number two, this is how you get loyalty. This is how you get love. This is how you get respect. I mean, how do you not love these guys? I don't care why they're doing it. They're definitely doing the right thing. Now, what we're going to do for you is we're going to put up a list of senators that backed them before. So you'll know who's on the right side or could be on the right side here and who's not on the right side. If you see your senator on the list, call him up and say, hey, God bless. Thank you. Please follow Dodd and Feingold. Don't give in to Bush. We didn't elect you to give in to Bush. We're going to put that up in a second on our website. Okay, that list. If your senator is not on the list, that means he wants to work with Dick Cheney and George Bush in, help, in making it easy on them to break the law. They should be impeached for breaking the law. Instead, these Democrats want to, some of these Democrats want to hand them over a gift. The possible people who are going to help Dodd, by the way, just let me share it with the audience here. The good guys in this case, possibly. It's not set in stone yet. Are Barbara Boxer, Sherrod Brown, Back on the right side of things. Like 
like to see Sherrod Brown on the right side. Russ Feingold, of course. Ted Kennedy. Bill Nelson of Florida. That's a little surprising. But that's great because he's sometimes conservative. Uh, Ron Wyden of Oregon. God bless his heart. People who are on the fence. Joe Bi Not on the fence, but more on the fence than those other guys. Joe Biden. Hillary Clinton. Barack Obama. Okay, we'll give you the full list on the website. Call all of them and say, please back Dodd and Feingold and fight hard on this. And the others call them up and say, what the hell are you thinking? Uh, by the way, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, that's point number three we said last night. Where are they? I know, they're busy campaigning. God forbid you should actually do your job. God forbid you should show leadership when you claim that you're running for the leader of the free world. But for the moment being, at least they're speaking on the right side. Encourage them to do that. Amongst other news, uh, there was a lot of news on the FISA front. And uh, here to discuss that with us uh, today, amongst other uh, topics, dealing with the Department of Justice and a sense of justice in this uh, country, uh, Scott Horton. He's a New York attorney specializing in human rights and international law. He writes the blog No Comment for Harper's Magazine Online. Larissa Alexandrovna, managing editor of investigative news for rawstory.com, also has a blog uh, entitled At Largely... And uh, hopefully joining us uh, later in the conversation, Glenn Greenwald, author of A Tragic Legacy, How a Good versus Evil Mentality Destroyed the Bush Presidency. Uh, Scott, let's start with you. Um, a lot happened on the FISA front. Uh, catch us up, uh, if you would. Well, I'd say the bottom line right now uh, is that uh, the Senate rejected the Dodd Amendment, which had to do with uh, telecom immunity, uh, and passed a bill that gave the White House, I'd say, at least 85% of what it wanted. Uh, but the uh, House enacted a totally different version, uh, including one that didn't give telecom immunity. So we're now at the conference stage, uh, and President Bush is putting maximum pressure on the House to recede and allow the uh, Senate version to uh, control. Uh, and I think uh, all people who are concerned about civil liberties are on the side of the House of Representatives, the People's House, as it's called. Now, uh, Larissa, this is, uh, this is sort of a, from a political standpoint, this is a, or at least has the potential to be, a rather exciting uh, moment because it seems like the House has finally... Uh, stood up against a uh, an administration that is uh, 25, 30 percent approval rating, and a on an issue of immunity for corporate lawbreakers, which doesn't seem to have a natural constituency. Uh, but nevertheless, this is this is a little bit surprising, isn't it? Well, yeah, and and if you, I don't know if you read the um, House uh, Intelligence Committee uh, Chairman's letter. Um, to the president basically about this entire thing basically saying we're not backing down and as far as i'm concerned this has nothing to do with national security and i'm certainly paraphrasing um, but basically this is something that you know is very political and when i saw that i was you know i was surprised i i think i was uh... though 
very happy to finally see, I think as we all were, that someone somewhere was doing something. Um, it, it was very exciting, and I think it was also very interesting that the Republicans walked out. Um, that certainly, that was a shocker, too, I'm, you know. Now, the Republicans just got up and walked out of the House, and part of that was also a function of uh, uh, contempt citations being voted on by the House. We're going to talk about those a little bit later. Uh, but, Scott, we have a situation here where uh, in September, I believe it was, or late August, uh, the House and the Senate, they, they passed the uh, Protect America Act or the American Protection Act, some uh, ridiculously named uh, addendum to the FISA statute. Uh, and uh, apparently most of that, if, uh, if the specific issues have gone before FISA, will still be in effect for another year. The House wanted to extend the existence of this law, which was to sunset yesterday. Uh, by by 15 days, but the Bush administration said, uh, if you try that, we'll veto it. So, I mean, are, are we to really believe that this is really about um, uh, protecting America, or is this simply just a way of uh, uh, of getting telecommunications um, uh, immunity, and why do they want it so badly? Well, I'd say, you know, the behavior of the White House and the Republicans was like uh, pouting bullies on an elementary schoolyard. Uh, either you give us absolutely everything we want, or we're going to cry and go home. We won't play anymore. Now, that was the attitude. Because remember, the uh, the House leadership, like the Senate leadership, said, you know, we're happy to uh, give you a continuation of the Restore America Act. And, and the uh, Republican leadership in the White House said, no, we won't take it. We don't want it. Uh, and I think that made it very, very clear that this was really all about one thing, which was immunity for the telecoms. It was essentially saying... Uh, recognizing they broke the law, they violated criminal statutes by colluding with the Bush administration and allowing warrantless searches of uh, of telephone conversations uh, and internet communications, um, and uh, and and the White House is offering them immunity, which is to bail them out of a number of uh, private civil suits. Uh, and uh, and what we hear, we get, hardly even hear an, a well-articulated rationalization why this is needed. Uh, I mean, President Bush in his address on Saturday told us uh, if this statute lapsed, uh, we would immediately be attacked and would all be killed, and it would be because of Congress's failure to grant retroactive telecom immunity. I mean, it's to, to repeat it is to note how absurd the statement and the claim were. Well, let's hear. Let's hear. Uh, uh, Director of National Intelligence Mike McConnell was on Chris Wallace on Fox News today, and uh, this is his justification. Uh, for the life of me, I'm not sure I could figure it out. This is number two. And uh, we're queuing that Isn't up. Isn't the central issue here that you've lost your power to compel telecommunications companies to cooperate with you and also your ability to offer them legal immunity? Again, the Democrats would say, look, if the, if the cooperation is legal, they don't need legal immunity. Exactly right. The, the issue now is there's uncertainty because the law has expired. And the law of August, the uh, Protect America Act, allowed us to compel, compel uh, support from a, from a private carrier. Uh, that's now expired. So we can make an argument to a court, but you see, that, that makes my point. If I'm in court arguing for, for uh, an authorization, then I'm, I'm missing a dynamic situation. Now, I, for the life of me... I, I, I mean, can anybody break? Uh, Glenn Greenwald has just joined us. Glenn, I don't know if you heard that clip. That was Mike McConnell 
basically trying to confuse Chris Wallace, I guess, as to why now um, telecommunications companies would not, uh, I guess, if they were brought a warrant, they would not now follow the law for some reason because when they broke the law before, they were being punished for it. Well, I think the argument is is that under the Protect America Act, um, which which expired, they had the power to compel the telecommunications companies to comply with requests for eavesdropping. And they're now saying that because that law expired, there's a real question as to whether or not they can force telecommunication companies uh, to comply with their requests, and therefore we're, we're all going to be endangered because the telecoms aren't going to comply. Um, the reason why that's just so dishonest on so many levels is, is that, first of all, the only reason the law expired is because Bush threatened to veto any extension that was passed um, by the House and the Senate. And so the law expired because Bush compelled it to expire. Um, secondly, you know, if, 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 if it's true, and it is, that under the Protect America Act, they can force the telecoms to comply with requests for eavesdropping. And it is true. They can force the telecoms. They don't have the, op- op- the option to refuse. All they have to do is either extend the Protect America Act or make it a better law um, and keep those provisions and not have telecom amnesty um, and the whole argument that, well, without amnesty, uh, telecoms won't cooperate disappears because the government has the ability to compel the telecoms to cooperate with legal requests for surveillance. And that, of course, is, is the whole point here. This whole idea that AT&T and Verizon aren't going to cooperate in the future is pure fear-mongering. It's just a way of saying, give us all the powers that we want. Give us the amnesty that we're demanding. Otherwise, these telecoms won't let us listen in when Osama calls. And, and it's false on, on many levels. Uh, so, so uh, Scott, uh, aside from the the faulty logic, is it true that if uh, the government has a warrant at this point, that they can't compel the telecommunications companies to uh, to to follow the terms of this warrant? Well, they can, they can certainly use reason to get them to do it, but I mean, it defies all logic to say that a telecom that would violate the law and cooperate before now won't cooperate when it's perfectly legal for them to do so. That's just ridiculous. Uh, and, uh, Larissa, I, I want to get your response to this clip. This is, uh, Chris Wallace. Uh, this is clip number three. Uh, this is Chris Wallace, uh, apparently frustrated that Mike McConnell is not selling this in the way that he's supposed to sell it. So he sort of helps him out here. This is number three. So, so just to summarize this, how, would you say that the country is in great, greater danger now of terrorist <laughs> attack because this law has expired? Increased danger, and it will increase more and more as time goes on. And the key is, the, uh, if, if you think about the private sector global communications, uh, many people think the government operates that. 98% of it is owned and operated by the private sector. We cannot do this mission without help and support from the private sector. And the private sector, uh, although willingly helped us in the past, are now saying, um, you can't protect me, why should I help you? Well, uh, Larissa, they can protect them if it's the law, if they do it uh, illegally, but this is just astonishing, because this is the third time I've heard this 97, 98% uh, talking point. Uh, and, and is this what we're going to see? I mean, is this the politics of this thing? It's going to be the politics of fear again. That's right. And what's remarkable is just this week we, we heard about how the Saudis were threatening not to cooperate with the British uh, on terrorism issues. That is, they were saying, okay, well, if the terrorists attack you, you know, or are planning an attack, we won't share the information. Should you investigate a corruption uh, scandal that we're a part of. And it, it almost sounds to me like that. It, it's this really dangerous kind of rhetoric. It's not so much, 
you know, um, it, it, it's gone beyond politics when you can quite literally um, play with the security of a nation, um, even even as just in talking points. When you've got the head of uh, domestic intelligence, when you've got the president coming out and saying we are going to get hit, to me is very alarming. You know, it's 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 very dangerous, and it certainly, um, to me anyway, uh, kind of sort of is on, in the same genre as what the Saudis are pulling over in the U.K. Yes, and I would also add that it's also in the same genre of uh, the Department of Justice. Uh, rather than being a, a, a body that is supposed to be the chief law enforcement agency of the country, uh, essentially being an extension of the political apparatus of the Republican Party. about the FISA law, about the wiretapping law. And he said, if you don't, if Congress doesn't authorize me to tap everybody's phones, we are in big trouble. And then I read about this guy named Sami Al-Hajj. Do you know who this is? He was an Al Jazeera cameraman. They stuck him in Guantanamo Bay for the last six years. Nick Kristof in the Times says he is a household name in the Arab world. He's on a hunger strike. They've tortured this guy. They've treated him abominably. And, you know, a few years ago, uh, Bush asked his key people in his staff whether we should close Guantanamo Bay. And Gates, the Secretary of Defense, and Condi Rice said, yes, close it. It's bad for us. Alberto Gonzalez and Cheney said, keep it open. Who does President Numbnuts listen to? Of course, <laughs> Dr. Evil and his Mexican mall lawyer. And I'm just saying... If this, guy, if this Arab guy who was just a cameraman is a household name in the Arab world and it's pissing off the whole Arab world, to me, that's causing a bigger problem for my future safety than whether they re-up the FISA law. No, that's absolutely right. And you can't, I mean, it's hard to imagine an enemy doing as much damage to our own reputation as we've done in Iraq and in Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib. And, I mean, this is fodder for our enemies. I mean, this is, this is their rallying cry now. will be able to use the image of a walking person to identify them completely. We're using like tracking and height and gate DNA to figure out what kind of person this is. Gate DNA, identification by how you walk. 
three cameras here. Yeah. At the University of Maryland, some of the brightest scientific brains are working on surveillance technology prompted by the war on terror. So even if we're walking like this, yes. and I look up just for one second and yes. away again, that's yeah. enough. Is yes. It? yes, we yeah. rely on about 30 frames. Yeah. And then as you walk through a crowd, we'll be able to track you. Here, for example, once your ID signature is stored, you can be detected anywhere. This is how it works. They use facial recognition from a CCTV camera so that in future I can be picked out of a crowd. And all my personal information from height to walking creates algorithms and that's my unique identity. 5'9", 5'10". 5'10", that's spot on. So you've got my height, you've got my face recognition, you've got my gait DNA, so you're beginning to build a profile of me. is to turn the computer into a detective. Once, the best defense brains in America concentrated on tracking nuclear missiles. Now the emphasis is on individuals. One Pentagon agency is specially tasked with making sure that America is always ahead of the game. The Internet, invented by DARPA way back in the 1970s. Turn right, then bear left. And in the 1980s, DARPA was working on satellite navigation that many of us now have in our cars. So I better ask them tomorrow about the... The agency doesn't often go public, but in a rare interview, I asked whether the concept of living in a world of total surveillance was pure science fiction. No, that's not science fiction. Um, we are now uh, starting the development of an airplane, a UAV, un uninhabited, unmanned aircraft, which may be able to stay up five years. Now, if it stays up five years, or even if it stays up a very long time with cameras on it, we literally will be able to have, for the people on the ground, you know, cameras overhead constantly being cued to go look here and there that they can watch on the screen. This is done today. Uh, and, and uh, you know, to, to a limited uh, amount to done today in, in Baghdad, but it will be, it will be the way to go. That part of arrogance. But is it what the public actually wants? Well, this really is the basic question today, and it's a debate between privacy versus security. Uh, what is the acceptable level of privacy when you're trying to determine whether or not there are terrorist cells or individuals operating inside the United States? What this really comes down to is how do you manage risk? Well, the answer right now is that about 75% of us prefer not to risk it and actually want more surveillance. Humphrey Hawksley, BBC News, Washington.
story on the countdown, the nexus of politics and terror again, after several days in which he had kept his hysteria in check and conservative bastions like the Cato Institute and the Washington Times insisted he had the credibility on this issue of Chicken Little. President Bush lost it anew this afternoon on his flight home from Liberia. It's the so-called Protect America Act, which has not yet been renewed by the House because the president first refused a temporary extension of it and then refused a permanent extension of it that does not include immunity for the telecom companies who helped him break the law. If we do not give liability protection to those who are helping us, they won't help us, he said today. And if they don't help us, there will be no program. And if there's no program, America is more vulnerable. Mr. Bush then presented two comparatively new red herrings. These companies are going to be subject to multi-billion dollar lawsuits by trial lawyers, plaintiff's attorneys, and it's going to drive them away from helping us unless they get liability protection, prospective and retroactive. So it's official. This is not just about laws they broke in the past. It's about laws they will break in the future. Plus the suits against the telecoms. They're mostly by outfits like the ACLU with lawyers volunteering their time so you can drop that money-making crap too. As preface, we remind you again that coincidences can happen, that the logical fallacy insists that just because event A occurs and then event B occurs, that does not automatically mean that event A caused event B. But neither does it say the opposite. I can assure you Al-Qaeda in their planning isn't thinking about politics, Mr. Bush said last week. They're thinking about hurting American people again. As vital an issue of what is the Bush administration thinking in its planning. The first 13 juxtapositions that constitute the nexus of politics and terror. Please judge for yourself. Number one, May 18th, 2002. The first details of the president's daily briefing of August 6, 2001 are revealed, including its title, Bin Laden Determined to Strike in U.S. The same day, another memo is discovered, revealing the FBI knew of men with links to al-Qaeda training at an Arizona flight school. The memo was never acted upon. Questions about 9-11 intelligence failures are swirling. May 20th, 2002. The terror warnings from the highest levels of the federal government tonight are just... Two days later, warnings. FBI Director Mueller declares that another terrorist attack is inevitable. Tonight, there are even more warnings the of possible terrorist attacks The next day, the Department of Homeland Security issues warnings of attacks against railroads nationwide and against New York City landmarks like the Brooklyn Bridge and the Statue of Liberty. That agility that... Number two, uh, Mueller was Thursday, June 6th, 2002. I never really anticipated this kind of impact. Colleen um, Rowley, the FBI agent who tried to alert her superiors to the specialized flight training taken by Zacharias Moussaoui, whose information suggests the government missed a chance to break up the 9-11 plot, testifies before Congress. Senate Intelligence Committee Chair Graham says Rowley's testimony has inspired similar pre-9-11 whistleblowers. Monday, June 10th, 2002, four days later. We have disrupted an unfolding terrorist plot. Speaking from Russia, Attorney General John Ashcroft reveals that an American named Jose Padilla is under arrest, accused of plotting a radiation bomb attack in this country. In fact, Padilla had by this time already been detained for more than one month. Number three, February 5th, 2003. Secretary of State Powell tells the United Nations Security Council of Iraq's concealment of weapons, including 18 mobile biological weapons laboratories. 
justifying a U.N. or U.S. first strike. Many in the U.N. are doubtful. Months later, much of the information proves untrue. February 7, 2003. Two days later, as anti-war demonstrations continue to take place around the globe. Take some time to prepare for an emergency. Homeland Security Secretary Ridge cites credible threats by al-Qaeda and raises the terror alert level to orange. Three days after that, fire administrator David Paulison, who would become the acting head of FEMA after the Hurricane Katrina disaster, advises Americans to stock up on plastic sheeting and duct tape to protect themselves against radiological or biological attack. Number four, July 23, 2003. The White House admits that the CIA, months before the president's State of the Union address, expressed strong doubts about the claim that Iraq had attempted to buy uranium from Niger. On the 24th, the congressional report on the 9-11 attacks is issued. It criticizes government at all levels. It reveals an FBI informant had been living with two of the future hijackers. It concludes that Iraq had no link to al-Qaeda. 28 pages of the report are redacted. On the 26th, American troops are accused of beating Iraqi prisoners. July 29, 2003, three days later, amid all of the negative headlines, word of a possible new al-Qaeda attack, Homeland Security issues warnings of further terrorist attempts to use airplanes for suicide attacks. Number five. December 17, 2003, 9-11 Commission co-chair Thomas Kane says the attacks were preventable. The next day, a federal appeals court says the government cannot detain suspected radiation bomber Jose Padilla indefinitely without charges. And the chief U.S. weapons inspector in Iraq, Dr. David Kay, who has previously announced he has found no weapons of mass destruction there, announces he will resign his post. December 21st, 2003. Four days later, the Sunday before Christmas. Today, the United States government raised the national threat level. Homeland Security again raises the threat level to orange, claiming credible intelligence of further plots to crash airliners into U.S. cities. Subsequently, six international flights into this country are canceled after some passenger names purportedly produced matches on government no-fly lists. The French later identify those matched names. One belongs to an insurance salesman from Wales, another to an elderly Chinese woman, a third to a five-year-old boy. Number six, March 30th, 2004. The new chief weapons inspector in Iraq, Charles Dulfer, tells Congress, we have still not found any WMD in that country. And after weeks of having refused to appear before the 9-11 commission, Condoleezza Rice relents and agrees to testify. On the 31st, four Blackwater USA contractors working in Iraq are murdered. Their mutilated bodies dragged through the streets and left on public display in Fallujah. The role of civilian contractors in Iraq is now widely questioned. April 2nd, 2004. The FBI has issued a new warning tonight. To Homeland Security issues a bulletin warning that terrorists may try to blow up buses and trains using fertilizer and fuel bombs like the one detonated in Oklahoma City. Bombs stuffed into satchels or duffel bags. Number seven, May 16th, 2004. Secretary of State Powell appears on Meet the Press. Moderator Tim Russert closes by asking him about the enormous personal credibility Powell had placed before the UN in laying out a case against Saddam Hussein. An aide to Powell interrupts the question, saying the interview is over. I think that was one of your staff, Mr. Secretary. I don't think that's appropriate. 
get this Emily Jett out of the way. Powell finishes his answer, admitting that much of the information he had been given about weapons of mass destruction in Iraq was, uh, was inaccurate and uh, wrong, and in some cases deliberately misleading. On the 21st, new photos showing mistreatment of Iraqi prisoners at Abu Ghraib prison are released. On the 24th, Associated Press video from Iraq confirms U.S. forces mistakenly bombed a wedding party, killing more than 40. Wednesday, May 26, 2004. Two days later. Good afternoon. Attorney General Ashcroft Today, Director and FBI Mueller Director and Mueller warned that intelligence from multiple sources indicates al-Qaeda's specific intention to hit the United States hard. And that 90% of the arrangements for an attack on the United States were complete. The color-coded warning system is not raised. The Homeland Security Secretary, Tom Ridge, does not attend the announcement. Number eight, July 6, 2004. Democratic presidential candidate John Kerry selects Senator John Edwards as his vice presidential running mate, producing a small bump in the election opinion polls and producing a huge swing in media attention towards the Democratic campaign. July 8, 2004, two days later. Credible reporting now indicates that al-Qaeda is moving forward with its plans to carry out a large-scale attack in the United States. Homeland Secretary Ridge warns of information about al-Qaeda attacks during the summer or autumn. Four days after that, the head of the U.S. Election Assistance Commission, DeForest B. Soares Jr., confirms he has written to Ridge about the prospect of postponing the upcoming presidential election in the event it is interrupted by terrorist acts. Number nine, July 29, 2004. At their party convention in Boston, the Democrats formally nominate John Kerry as their candidate for president. As in the wake of any convention, the Democrats now dominate the media attention over the subsequent weekend. August 1st, 2004. Monday morning, three days later. It is as reliable a uh, group of sources that we've ever seen before. The Department of Homeland Security raises the alert status for financial centers in New York, New Jersey, and Washington to orange. The evidence supporting the warning, reconnaissance data left in a home in Iraq, later proves to be roughly four years old and largely out of date. Number 10, October 6, 2005, 10 a.m. Eastern Time. The president addresses the National Endowment for Democracy, once again emphasizing the importance of the war on terror and insisting his government has broken up at least 10 terrorist plots since 9-11. At 3 p.m. Eastern Time, five hours after the president's speech has begun, the Associated Press reports that Karl Rove will testify again to the CIA leak grand jury and that Special Prosecutor Fitzgerald has told Rove he cannot guarantee that he will not be indicted. We're awaiting a news conference at the bottom of the hour. New York City At 5.17 p.m. Eastern Time, seven hours after the president's speech has begun, New York officials disclose a bomb threat to the city's subway system based on information supplied by the federal government. A Homeland Security spokesman says the intelligence upon which the disclosure is based is of doubtful credibility. And it later proves that New York City had known of the threat for at least three days and had increased police presence in the subways long before making the announcement at that particular time. Local New York television station WNBC reports it had the story of the threats days in advance of the announcement but was asked by high-ranking federal officials in New York and Washington to hold off on its story. 
Less than four days after having revealed the threat, Mayor Michael Bloomberg of New York says, since the period of the threat now seems to be passing, I think over the immediate future, we'll slowly be winding down the enhanced security. While news organizations ranging from the New York Post to NBC News quote sources who say there was reason to believe the informant who triggered the warning simply made it up. A senior U.S. counterterrorism official tells the New York Times, quote, there was no there, there. Number 11, a sequence of events in August 2006 best understood now in chronological order. As the month begins, the controversy over domestic surveillance without legal warrants in this country crests. Then on August 9th, the day after the Connecticut Democratic Senatorial primary, Vice President Cheney says the victory of challenger Ned Lamont over incumbent Joe Lieberman is a positive for the, quote, Al-Qaeda types, who he says, quote, clearly are betting on the proposition that ultimately they break the will of the American people in terms of our ability to stay in the fight. The next day, British authorities arrest 24 suspects in an alleged imminent plot to blow up U.S.-bound aircraft using liquid explosives smuggled on board in sports drink bottles. Domestic air travel is thrown into chaos as carry-on liquids are suddenly banned. On August 14th, British intelligence reveals it did not think the plot was imminent, only the U.S. did, and our authorities pressed to make the arrests. Eleven of the 24 suspects are later released, and in the months to come, the carry-on liquids ban is repeatedly relaxed. Number 12, May 7, 2007, Greensburg, Kansas, leveled by a tornado, and the state's governor notes more in sorrow than in anger that the redeployment of so much of the Kansas National Guard and its equipment to Iraq might now cripple the soldiers' ability to respond if another disaster hits Kansas. What we're really missing is equipment, and that is putting a strain on recoveries like this one. Plan the next day, the authorities announce arrests in a far-fetched plan to attack soldiers at Fort Dix in New Jersey. The so-called terrorists plan to gain access to the base by posing as pizza delivery men. It is not a suicide mission. They state clearly they intend to kill personnel and then retreat to safety, even though they were going to attack a closed compound full of trained soldiers with weapons. And though the plan is branded sophisticated, its perpetrators are not sophisticated enough to have not handed over the videotape of themselves training with weapons to a Circuit City store in order to be transferred to DVD. The Fort Dix plot not only erases from most news coverage the issue of disaster readiness in Kansas, but it also obscures the next day's story that in anticipation of his testimony to a House panel, Attorney General Alberto Gonzalez has submitted opening remarks that match virtually word for word the remarks he had given the previous month to a Senate committee. Recognizing my limited involvement in the process, a mistake I freely acknowledge, a mistake that I freely acknowledge, I have soberly questioned my prior decisions. And number 13, June 2007, the JFK plot to blow up the jet fuel pipeline feeding John F. Kennedy International Airport in New York City, thus causing the entire airport to be consumed in a horrific conflagration. One of the men arrested has, as a past employee, access to the sprawling complex, but little knowledge of the reality of the pipeline system. The manager of that system tells the New York Times that the pipeline is not some kind of fuse. Shutoff valves throughout would have easily contained any damage, just as a leak in a tunnel in any city would not flood everything in that city below ground. The so-called plot happens to be revealed the day before the second Democratic presidential debate. 
And as the scandal continues to unfold over the firings of U.S. attorneys and their replacements by political hacks, the so-called plot is announced by the Bush-appointed U.S. attorney for Brooklyn, New York, and by the police chief of New York City, the father of a correspondent for Fox News Channel. In all candor, somebody could probably construct a similar timeline connecting terror events to the phases of the moon. But also in all candor, after five years of this, it seems inarguable now that what we are told about terror and not told for security reasons has overlapped considerably with what we are told about terror and not told for political reasons. Just today, we learned that the CIA admitted it had given false information to the British, that contrary to its previous insistences, it had used British airports for the extraordinary rendition of two terrorist suspects, one of whom has now been set free, and that the British government is now awkwardly apologizing for its consistent denials that it ever aided the so-called torture flights. No curious juxtaposition there, just hard evidence that politics and purported counterterrorism have been intertwined that if merely a reasonable case can be made that any of these other intertwinings are more than just coincidences. It underscores the need for questions to be asked and asked continually in this nation. Questions about what is prudence and what is merely fear-mongering. CrooksandLiars.com joins us now. John, how are you, man? Hey, brother, what's happening? But hold on. I can't really talk right now because I see, I think I see some Muslims in my backyard. Oh, let's they, report them. They're carrying guns, and I'm, I'm, I'm kind of really afraid of this whole thing. It's, you know what? This, this Protect America Act, they let, it, they let it expire, and I'm really scared. I don't know what I'm going to do. <laughs> so please help me. Young Turks, come to my rescue. We're dying. <laughs> John is referring to the scare tactics that the GOP is using in this clip that you're about to watch. It's on Crooks and Liars, obviously. It's from GOP.gov. The Democrats uh, said they're going to fight Bush on this FISA bill and this telecom immunity. So the Republicans, they went to the well. I mean, get a load of what they're running. Check it out. Here it is. This week, the Senate overwhelmingly passed a new bill extending those warrantless wiretap powers. But House Democratic leaders refuse to bring up that bill because they know it will pass. Today, a dramatic protest by House Republicans who walked off the House floor and out of the Capitol building. A day when the President and these Republicans, and a vast majority of the Senate, feel as though the law governing the electronic surveillance of terrorists in this country should be taken up. That bill right now in limbo uh, because the Senate has passed a bill uh, that House Democrats are vehemently against. Would you say that the country is in great, greater danger now of terrorist attack because this law has expired? Increased danger and it will increase more and more as time goes on. People have to understand around here that the quality of the intelligence that we're going to be receiving 
is going to be degraded. It's going to be degraded. It's already going to be degraded. There is no urgency. There is no urgency. There is no urgency. No mushroom cloud? I, there should have been a mushroom cloud through it or a toll-free number so you could order to get your own, like, armbands and, like, epaulets on your sports coats. John, they actually had a countdown in this thing, as if, like, the, the country is going to explode. I know. It's it's typical, you know, typical fear-mongering, obviously. But they, they did, if I actually have to give it to them, they did a, a, a very good job with it. And, you know, Glenn Greenwald noted that it, they ripped off uh, 24 to, to sort of produce this. So they don't have the intelligence, obviously, to do anything themselves. So they go, you know, the whole Republican line on torture and on this commercial they get from 24. It, you know, I hadn't noticed that. That's a great point. And also, the, doesn't this quasi-commercial, whatever it is, encapsulate the whole last seven years, John? Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you can just go back to when time, even let's go to the 04 election. <clears throat> they kept having these phony uh, red alerts and high alerts, and they'd go on and do a press conference, and Tom Ridge admitted that they used those for political purposes. And I mean, just think about that. The administration used the Department of Homeland Security to break into our network TVs, to break into the, the talkies, the cable networks, to say, high alert, high alert. High alert when it was a fabrication. I mean, to me, they should be locked up for that, for the use of the Department of Homeland Security to scare people. And that's really all they have left. And if you see now with this campaign, that's all John McCain represents. It's fear-mongering, and if you don't, now it'll be, if you don't, you know, this commercial will be morphed into, you know, Obama at the end. You know, and it'll say, elect John McCain. Or, as you saw with this commercial, the opening was the whole, they, they used the whole planet. So the whole planet will just blow up if Obama's elected. You know, it's, the, of course, the question that arises, John, is, look, I think historians will look back on this and look at it as the symptomatic of the whole Republican strategy for the last seven years, and we'll see it as heinous, right? And we'll see it as their I don't cool. think we'll see it as, I think they'll see it as hysterical. Well... You know, it would be a circle if it didn't work, but that leads to the question that I was going to ask, John, which is, do you think that it has any effect now on anyone outside of the, you know, the strident conservative base? Does this still work after all this time, or has it lost all effectiveness? You know, I think it, it's lost a lot of its juice, a lot of its effectiveness, but, they, but like, that's the card that they have, you know, they, they're going to play it. And, I, and it is effective. It'll whip up their base, so to speak, because that's the only thing that they can really run on in this cycle. Um, I would hope that most Americans who aren't, on, you know, who don't follow politics as closely as we do, will not be affected by this. And I think they will start laughing this stuff off. They will. They actually will probably think that this is like, a, you know, the movie of the week coming out.
you. President Bush will listen to you and loves you so much, he broke the law and began spying on America. That's not illegal, that's love. Some telecom companies will break multiple laws to help the government spy on you because they love America and freedom so much. Uh, unless the government stops paying them to spy, then they'll disconnect spy service. After all, freedom isn't free. The warrantless wiretap you called has been disconnected or is no longer in service. Please pay your bill and try again. Congress loves you so much, they'll enshrine an illegal spying program into legal law because they want you snugly and secure. Some will even go back in time and give amnesty to lawbreakers because if we did punish lawbreakers, they might not help us next time we have to break the law. We love you and want to protect you from terrorists who want to undermine our system of laws and democracy. So we have to undermine our system of laws and democracy to protect you from terrorists. The spies who love you and want you snugly and secure. And if you don't believe me, you're supporting terrorism. Democrats in the House of Representatives are closing the shop down tonight until a week from Monday, leaving President Bush twisting slowly in a wind of his own creation. Our third story in the countdown, the FISA bill and the retroactive immunity for the telecom giants that helped Mr. Bush illegally eavesdrop on Americans will thus just sit there, unacted upon, not even a temporary extension, which the Republicans and Mr. Bush refused, despite the president's threats that if the bill is not passed by Saturday, there would be a breakdown in counterterrorism surveillance and plagues of locusts and stuff. A special comment in a moment. First, the details. House Democrats, in essence, calling the Republicans bluff. They staged a walkout at midday, did the Republicans, led by John Boehner, who in one act managed to che the cheesy political theater and managed to get out just as representatives were to vote on contempt of Congress citations against Harriet Myers and Josh Bolton. That the Republicans just happened to walk to a stand full of microphones, pure coincidence. The president had started all this with his now daily message of fear and with what apparently he saw as a threat to postpone his scheduled trip to Africa. The House should not leave Washington without passing the Senate bill. Now, I am scheduled to leave tomorrow for a long-planned trip to five African nations. Moments ago, my staff informed the House leadership that I'm prepared to delay my departure and stay in Washington with them if it will help them complete their work on this critical bill. The lives of countless Americans depend on our ability to monitor terrorist communications. Having lost, he now says he's going to Africa after all. Another threat or promise unfulfilled. Now, as promised, a special comment. A part of what I will say was said here first on January 31st. Unfortunately, it is both sadder and truer now than it was then. Who's to blame, Mr. Bush also said this afternoon. Look, these folks in Congress passed a good bill late last summer. The problem is they let the bill expire. My attitude is if the bill was good enough then, why not pass the bill again? You know, like the Gulf of Tonkin Resolution, or Executive Order 9066, or the Alien and Sedition Acts, or slavery. Mr. Bush, you say that our ability to track terrorist threats will be weakened and our citizens will be in greater danger, yet you have weakened that ability. You have subjected us, your citizens, to that greater danger. This, Mr. Bush, is simple enough even for you to understand. For the moment, at least, thanks to some true patriots in the House and to your own stubbornness, you have tabled telecom immunity and the FISA Act. You, by your own terms and your own definitions, you have just sided with the terrorists. You got to have this law or we're all going to die. But practically speaking, you vetoed the law. 
It is bad enough, sir, that you are demanding an ex post facto law, which could still clear the AT&Ts and the Verizons from responsibility for their systematic, aggressive, and blatant collaboration with your illegal and unjustified spying on Americans under this flimsy guise of looking for any terrorists who might be stupid enough to make a collect call or send a mass email. But when you demanded it again during the State of the Union address, you wouldn't even confirm that they'd actually done anything for which they deserved to be cleared. The Congress must pass liability protection for companies believed to have assisted in the efforts to defend America. Believed? Don't you know? Don't you even have the guts Dick Cheney showed in admitting they did collaborate with you? Does this endless presidency of loopholes and even fine print extend here, too? If you believe in the seamless mutuality of government and big business, come out and say it. There is a dictionary definition, one word that describes that toxic blend. You're a fascist. Get them to print you a t-shirt with fascist on it. What else is this but fascism? Did you see Mark Klein on this newscast last November? Mark Klein was the AT&T whistleblower, the one who explained in the placid and dull terms of your local neighborhood IT desk how he personally attached all AT&T circuits, everything, carrying every one of your phone calls, every one of your emails, every bit of your web browsing into a secure room, room number 641A at the Folsom Street facility in San Francisco, where it was all copied so the government could look at it. Not some of it, not just the international part of it, certainly not just the stuff that some spy, a spy both both patriotic and telepathic, might able to divine had been sent or spoken by or to a terrorist. Everything. Every time you looked at a naked picture, every time you bid on eBay, every time you phoned in a donation to a Democrat. My thought was, Mr. Klein told us last November, George Orwell's 1984. And here I am, forced to connect the Big Brother machine. If there's one thing we know about Big Brother, Mr. Bush, it's that he, well, you, are a liar. This Saturday at midnight, you said today, legislation authorizing intelligence professionals to quickly and effectively monitor terrorist communications will expire. If Congress does not act by that time, our ability to find out who the terrorists are talking to, what they are saying, and what they are planning will be compromised. You said that the lives of countless Americans depend on you getting your way. This is crap. And you sling it with an audacity and a speed unrivaled even by the greatest political felons of our history. Richard Clark, you might remember him, sir. He was one of the counter-terror pros which you inherited from President Clinton before you ran the professionals out of government in favor of your unreality-based reality. Richard Clark wrote in the Philadelphia Inquirer, Let me be clear. Our ability to track and monitor terrorists overseas would not cease should the Patriot or Protect America Act rather expire. If this were true, the president would not threaten to terminate any temporary extension with his veto pen. All surveillance currently occurring would continue even after legislative provisions lapsed because authorizations issued under the act are in effect up to a full year. You are a liar, Mr. Bush. And after showing some skill at it initially, you have ceased to even be a very good liar. And your minions, like John Boehner, your Republican congressional crash dummies, who just happen to decide to walk out of Congress when a podium full of microphones await them, they should just keep walking out of Congress and, if possible, out of the country. For they, sir, and you, sir, have no place in a government of the people, by the people, for the people. A lot of you are the symbolic descendants of the despotic middle managers of some banana republic to whom freedom is an ironic brand name, a word you reach for when you want to get away with its opposite. 
Thus, Mr. Bush, your panoramic invasion of privacy is dressed up as protecting America. Thus, Mr. Bush, your indiscriminate domestic spying becomes the focused monitoring only of terrorist communications. Thus, Mr. Bush, what you and the telecom giants have done isn't unlawful. It's just the kind of perfectly legal, passionately patriotic thing for which you happen to need immunity. Richard Clark is on the money as usual. That the president was willing to veto this eavesdropping means there is no threat to the legitimate counter-terror efforts still underway. As Senator Kennedy reminded us in December, the president has said that American lives will be sacrificed if Congress does not change FISA. But he has also said that he will veto any FISA bill that does not grant retroactive immunity. No immunity, no FISA bill. So, if we take the president at his word, he's willing to let Americans die to protect the phone companies. And that literally cannot be. Even Mr. Bush could not overtly take a step that actually aids the terrorists. I'm not talking about ethics here. I'm talking about blame. If the president seems to be throwing the baby out with the bathwater, it means we can safely conclude there is no baby. Because if there were, sir, now that you have vetoed an extension of the eavesdropping, if some terrorist attack were to follow, you would not merely be guilty of siding with the terrorists. You would not merely be guilty of prioritizing the telecoms over the people. You would not merely be guilty of stupidity. You would not merely be guilty of treason, sir. You would be personally and eternally responsible. And if there is one thing we know about you, Mr. Bush, one thing you have proved time and time again, it is that you are never responsible. As recently ago as 2006, we spoke words like these with trepidation. The idea that even the most cynical and untrustworthy of the politicians in our history, George W. Bush, would use the literal form of terrorism against his own people was dangerous territory. It seemed to tempt fate, to heighten fear. We will not fear any longer. We will not fear the international terrorists. We will thwart them. We will not fear the recognition of the manipulation of our yearning for safety. We will call that what it is, terrorism. We will not fear identifying the vulgar hypocrites in our government. We will name them. And we will not fear George W. Bush, nor will we fear because George W. Bush wants us to fear. Just wanted to thank everyone who's been sending me clips over the last week and a half. You guys have really been coming through, sending me a bunch of clips, and it's just been great. So, a big thank you goes out to Finks, Brandon, Duck of Prey, Chris, Pat, Sherry, Doug, and Justin. Finks, by the way, was the winner of last week's raffle, so he won himself a Best of Luck podcast hoodie. Just as a reminder... For every clip you guys send in, you get one entry into the raffle for the 8GB iPod Video Nano. So keep the clips coming. If you don't know what I'm talking about, um, go to our website, bestoftheleftpodcast.com, and click on the Send Us Clips link, and you will find all the information about the raffles there. So I think that's going to wrap it up for this episode. Thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll see you all again next week. Fine, fine, now black and white. You took a part of picture that wasn't right.
Jesus before. 